0: Well, if you saw up on Facebook, you put a little, a few little questions up there that will be coming up here. Big one is, did God make things difficult for those who returned to Babylon, to return from Babylon the first time? Did he make it more difficult than it would have otherwise been? That's a question that's raised up because of verses 10 and 11 in Zechariah chapter 8 that seems to be saying that he uh, He made it difficult for them, but you guys are not going to make it difficult for it. So we're going to take a look at that question. And also, he is encouraging them because the prophetic words that came out before were not fulfilled the way they thought they should be, and now more prophetic words are coming out about the temple being built and so forth, and should they believe these, since the other ones didn't didn't occur. So with that, we're over at Zechariah chapter 8. There are some things that we'll review last week, right built into here, so we'll get into them. When we get there, Zechariah eight chapter, or chapter eight, verse one. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her." Thus says the Lord, "I will return to Zion, and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain." When he says here, "I am zealous for Zion," With great zeal, the word here for zealous and zeal in the Hebrew comes from the idea to become intensely red. It has the thought of a face becoming flushed with deep emotion, showing God's passionate concern for His people. It would seem that the presence of God in the city causes its transformation into a city, as it's listed here, of truth and holiness. God says, I have a zeal that just ignites my passions for this place. I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. And with great fervor, I am zealous for her. And he's going to come back to that zeal in just a little bit. He says, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So because of his zeal, he's coming to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And because of that presence, Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. In the mountain of the Lord of hosts. It was not called that before because it was a city filled with idolatry. But now this is what the Lord is saying. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of the people, in these days will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Now, older people are a good sign. It's always a good sign to have older people around. Older people pass things on to younger people. Hopefully the younger people listen. Younger people playing in the streets, this would indicate a high level of security. They feel secure. This is important to understand because right now the walls are... Half built in some areas, shambles in others. Remember, Nehemiah is going to come out here in a little while, and he's going to look at this thing. He's going to weep over the state of the walls. An walled city in these days is not considered to be safe. So he is prophesying something to them of a state or a condition that cannot be seen at this time. So when he's saying that these things are going to happen, the kids are going to play in the street, uh, right now, no, we wouldn't do that because there's no protection. Anybody can get in here. And uh, we don't, we're not going to have that going on now. So this is talking about something that's in the future. There probably are those around who would scoff at this and say, we've been looking at these walls in this condition for uh, quite a while now. Don't really think that any of this will go about. The walls actually won't be completed here for another 60 years. So it's, this prophecy is not going to be fulfilled immediately. And even after the walls are built, even Nehemiah's time, They were not in the state of complete peace. So that seems to be even a prophecy of something that is future. And you can see the scoffers would come out. And this is why some of the things are going to come out later on in this prophecy. Because we heard some of the prophecies before about the temple being built, but the temple work was stopped. Now you're telling us that there's going to be peace and security. And why should we believe it? How many times have we heard prophecies today that talk about something? Oh, yeah, we've heard about that before. Yeah, people have always been saying that's going to go on. And it hasn't happened yet. And we can begin to scoff. Now sometimes people are prophesying things that are false. And that's why they don't come about. But when God sends a prophecy, and we have determined that it is from God, we need to make sure that we don't look at things in the past to decide whether it's true or not. He uh, concludes this little section here with... If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes? There's different states that we can be in. Right now, they're in a bit of a state of a scoffing state. So something that is amazing to them is not amazing to someone who's in a faith state. But there are things for people that are in a faith state, they're believing God, and still it is marvelous in their eyes. You look at the disciples, they were in a state of believing. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, they marveled. That was still marvelous to them. You can be in a scoffing state and things can be marvelous to you. Not a big deal. But you can be in a believing state and still the things of God can shock us. They can be amazing to us. And uh, this is what he's talking about. Just because it's amazing to you doesn't mean it's amazing to me. Doesn't mean that it's anything marvelous to me. Because he is God. In Matthew 19:26, you remember this verse, With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's go over to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Now, at this time, most of the refugees that came are east or north. There are not really any from the West, and directly West is, of course, the ocean. So, um, when it talks about here, East-West, and this is where the refugees are coming from, it may be speaking of a more future time, and people are coming East-West, and it also could be referencing the rest of the world. I'm going to read two references for you. They're not up on the screen. But in Psalms 50 and verse 1, it says, The of Asaph, the Mighty One, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down, or from the east to the west. So the east to the west there was talking about the earth. Once again, Malachi 1.11, For from, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So they don't say east-west in these passages, But since the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, we get that same idea. East-west could be referring to the world and that the refugees would be coming from all the world and not just limited to the refugees over in Babylon, which is where most of the refugees are coming from now. So he may be expanding that out in that way. So they're not just coming back to the land, to their heritage, but it also says they're coming back to their God as well. Their hearts are coming back. They will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. It's one thing to come back to the location. It's another thing to come back to God being God. So God is zealous for them. They will become zealous for God. And what we become zealous for changes our actions toward and our defense of the things of this world. You take a look at people here in the, in today. You look at the things that they're zealous for. You have friends, you have relatives, you know certain things, they have a zeal for this. It seems like everybody has a zeal for something. You might have a zeal for cars, you might have a zeal for news, you might have a zeal for uh, whatever kind of activity it is. Some people have a zeal for the Word and some zeal for God, and that's the thing that takes precedence in their life. Whatever it is that takes precedence in your life, whatever you have the most zeal for, it will change the things that you defend and the things that you have actions toward. You're going to defend something more fervently if you have a zeal for that particular thing. If something else comes up, you don't have a zeal for it. eh, You know, it's no big deal. You know, some people they have a zeal for trees; they're out there trying to save all the trees in the world. (laughs) And other people, no, I really don't don't care that much about that. I think trees will handle themselves, and uh, they just they, they don't have the same zeal. That's why you have some people that want to sacrifice everything they can to make sure that the trees grow. And other people say, no, it's not worth sacrificing that so the trees could grow. It just depends on what they're zealous for and why they they see those things. So the same thing happens in the spiritual realm. We have to make sure that our zeal is for things that are good, that are in the word, that are for God, truth, righteousness, things like this. The Pharisees were zealous that people would keep the law. And so they they came up with laws to help them keep the law. Then they became more zealous about those laws they came up with to help you keep the laws and the laws themselves. And because of that zeal, they couldn't see Jesus as the Son of God. They couldn't see the miracles. They couldn't see all that because of that zeal they had for that. Even when Jesus was gone, they couldn't see the zeal in Peter, John, the disciples. And so they came after that because of their zeal for something else. We have to make sure that we protect our zeal, that we are zealous for the right things. God said, I am zealous for them, which means they were a priority. They was going to make sure that he came in and, and changed some things. So he's passing this on to them. I am zealous for the people of Israel. I am zealous for Jerusalem. And they needed to become zealous for him as well. Zeal changes things. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who have been hearing in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the day that the foundation was laid, for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built, For before these days there were no wages for man, nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men, everyone against his neighbor. Now here's the thing. We sometimes understand the word that some of it is written from the Jewish perspective in that they saw if God did not prevent something that God had a hand in doing it. You cannot apply that rule for a word from God. Because he is not Jewish. He is not restricted to their culture. So when he gives a word, you have to get yourself outside of that. Even though he's giving it to them, this is his word. This is his perspective, not their perspective. So this is God saying to the prophet. For I set all men, everyone against his neighbor. If it was... Someone from the Jewish people teaching them this, and that. We, we can understand, well, this is what their viewpoint of this was, but it's not. This is God saying it. So you can see that's a little bit of a, of a different thing. He is saying, I did this. I set men against each other. I sent the neighbors against each other. I stirred up that strife. Why did God do that? Why did God make things more difficult for the people who returned? Have you ever thought that sometimes God was making things more difficult? For you? Or have you ever thought that God led you in a way that just had more difficulty to it than you expected? This is what he's he's talking about in this chapter. This is what he's talking about in this prophecy. He says, Let's just read the whole thing again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets. Prophets is plural, so there's more than probably just Haggai. And uh, uh, Zechariah that are making these prophecies, there are probably some other ones that just didn't get recorded. So these words are coming about uh, about or from these prophets who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the foundation of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built. So the days here, they're hearing prophecies, and in the days of old, they have heard it said there were prophets who came and prophets who prophesied about the building of the temple. There may have been some prophets over in Babylon who prophesied to them the word of the Lord and they left Babylon to come to Jerusalem on the basis of what those prophets said. Those prophets said, you're going to be going, you're going to rebuild the temple, you're going to rebuild the walls. They heard that, they believed it, they came back, they went after it, they faced a lot of opposition, they became discouraged, and they eventually quit. And then the prophets rose up again, you need to get out there, you need to get busy maybe more than Haggai maybe more than just Zechariah they're the ones that we have recorded but there were prophets who spoke these things to them here he says who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built for before these days there were no wages for men nor any hire for beast there was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in for I set all men every one against his neighbor let me just summarize what he's saying here There was more work than there were resources, and there was more work than there was help to get it done. They didn't have enough, uh, help to, to do all the building. They had some. They had some resources. They were sent with some resources, but they're finding, they were finding out we don't have enough. We're, we're seeming to be inadequate. We have lots over here. We're missing some things over here. Uh, people are coming against us. We're having to divert some people. Because of the opposition that we have. Then they also had the legal problems that came in. That's the thing that finally shut them down. There was no peace from the enemy for whatever, for whoever went out or came in, for I set all men, everyone against his neighbor. So what he's saying is, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be strong. Let your hands be strong. You've been hearing. These are the things you've been hearing. These are the things that are coming up in your minds. These are the things that are coming up in your discussions. There are those of you who heard the word in the beginning days. You're here. You heard those words. And now you're hearing words again. And you may be passing it on to people. Why should we believe this? We heard these words before. I left Babylon on the basis of what prophet so-and-so said. And we came on out here. And we started out good. But then it shut down. And then nothing came about that we, we were supposed to be doing. And right now they haven't restarted the work. Zechariah is one of the two in the, in the word prophets to get things going again. But there are those who were at the beginning, they heard this, and they're probably passing it on to the people who didn't hear all those words. They saw the things that came against them, and they saw the end result was the work stopped. So if we had the prophecies that said, go on down to Jerusalem, you're going to have resources, you're going to have... Uh, uh, God is going to be with you, the temple will be rebuilt, go on down there and do that, they get on down there, they go after it, and then we know the story from Ezra, how they got discouraged, how they quit. Ezra comes back on down. They start to work up again. The prophets come out. But there are some people while this is going on saying, I don't really want to get involved in this project again. I know what happened when we did it before. And we faced such opposition and we came against that opposition and more opposition came and we came against that opposition and more opposition came and finally we just we didn't see any way to keep going and the work, work stopped. I don't want to get involved in that again. And I don't care who it is that's prophesying. I don't want to get involved in it again. And so this is the attitude that they're facing, that they have there, and this is what this chapter is dealing with. So great opposition came against them. There was outside, there were threats, and of course there was lack of some resources. The legal matters are what shut everything down. So why should I believe this time? Have you ever had that? Why should I believe this time? You know, we've had people who prophesied... Jesus Christ is coming, and they've picked years and they picked times, and you know those things have gone past. And then some other people rise up and they say, "Well, we got the time, and it's going to be this year, and it's going to be this time." And and then that time went by, and and pretty soon, you can just get to the point and say, "Well, why should I believe any of them?" But there was reason for them to believe this. If they did not believe this prophecy, they wouldn't go after doing it. Now as we went over a few weeks ago, some words are the result, some prophetic words are the result of our actions. Because of what I did, a prophetic word was sent. And we gave you some of the examples of that, some of the disobedience of Israel, some of the uh, uh, sins that David came into, required a prophet to come, and other things along that way. Some prophets, pro- prophetic words come as a result of our actions. Some require our actions. Some, if you will do this, this is what's coming. So our actions are required. And then, third, there are some that are simply, this is God's actions toward us. This is what I am going to do. Regardless of what man does, this is what God's going to do. Of course, the rapture is one of those. That is just something that God is going to do. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was something that God was going to do. Man didn't have to do anything. Now, the previous words did require their actions. They required their actions to build. They stopped their actions to build, so therefore the word didn't come about. I don't know what they could have done differently. I wasn't there. and There's no real uh, prophetic word telling them, well, you should have done this, or you should have gone and, and pursued this. But they did stop. And then the words came that they needed to get going again. So this is why the exhortation is here again. Get to work on the temple. But he said this, For I set all men, everyone against his neighbor. I set all men, everyone against his neighbor. So does God stir up trouble? As we said, it's hard to get away from this wording. This is the wording. This is this is God speaking. This is God's point of view. God is saying, "I saw this whole thing, and I stirred up trouble. <laughs> I did it." So I had to ask this question: Did God ever make trouble with Israel? Did God ever make trouble? Well, with Israel, well, we're going to see a couple of things in in order to to show you this. Um, I went back into probably the easiest of all the examples to see. And we have some uh, pictures and some slides for, for you to be able to follow along with this. And I did not email these out to everybody, but um, we should be able to see them pretty good on the, on the screen. So, this is uh, the situation with Israel in the case with Egypt when they came out. We've talked about it a number of times. I got a couple of maps because I want you to see this. And I want you to see a particular scripture that God said because this really helps to shed some light on that. So go ahead and pull up our first picture. This is the route of the Exodus, the way it is normally depicted. I don't agree with this map, but I wanted you to see this is, uh, this is how it is. Now this is the green line, and it comes down here to the south part. This is the traditional Mount Sinai. I believe that is false. I also believe this route is false. But this is the traditional one. This is the way people have, uh, have predicted this. And then they come back on over here. And then these, this area where the purple is, this is pretty, pretty set. We know what the locations were when they came to them. The part in question is this part down here. Now there's a, there's a Red Sea crossing in here. And if you look at the way the traditional way goes, they don't really cross over the Red Sea in any big spot. Maybe they go over, and maybe they go over the little body of water that's there, but it really doesn't make any sense why they would do that. And then, of course, they come down down to, to Mount Sinai, and there's actually no evidence at Mount Sinai here that they were ever there. So I, I don't see this as being true. And remember, they were led into a trap. So I pulled up some pictures, and if you were here, I think most of you were here and some time ago when we did a, a series on this, and we were looking at this in particular, and uh, gave you that uh, wonderful book to to read. Some of you went on out there and, and read it, uh, The Gold of Exodus. And in uh, that particular book, uh, I've, I've seen some critics talk about that and say that the author, I think Bloom, I think it was his name, uh, that he kind of uh, uh, made some of the facts a little bit far-fetched. I don't know, oh, that's the only book I ever read on it, but as far as I could tell, the facts on the thing are very true. And so what they did was... It's not, um, the author of that book is not the one who actually went on the expedition, but there are two guys who went on an expedition to find the real Red Sea crossing and the real Mount Sinai. Understand, there is no mount out here that just gets labeled, this is Mount Sinai, let's all go there and see where it is. We had to figure it out, which one that was uh, Mount Sinai. So, go ahead and go on to the second screen. This is the more probable route that the Israelites took, because... The thing was that they, they crossed over the Red Sea. If you look at the traditional route, to get to this area here where the traditional Mount Sinai is, unless you go down here, you don't have to really cross over a bad section of the Red Sea. They have to make something or say that, well, just maybe at that point there was a flood stage and maybe it was it was worse. They had to come up with, with a reason for it. But there's a path that you could come through here and pop out right over there, there's a name for that too, and I can't read that. But if you, right here where that, that landing is, it's a very big landing and could handle the people that Israel had at the time. Let's go on over to our next slide. We may come back to that one, so just keep a, a, a mark on where that is. This is the path that they would have come through. It's a very small path. Uh, not, not so small that you're going single file, but small enough that uh, you couldn't get a, you, they could not go side by side through the whole thing. But this is the beach area that they could have landed on, and this is where they could have been waiting for the, when the, Israel, when the um, Egyptian army came. And this is where they would have had to cross. Now, if you read the book, it's not on any of our slides, but if you read the book, you will find out that in this particular section of the Red Sea, right around here, there is about a one mile path of a raised area of the sand bed underneath that about a one mile path that just kind of raised that didn't raise all the way up and made the water super shallow. It just was a raised path and it's kind of flat there. It would have made a great walking area for them to come. When they have excavated that, when these two guys went out there and looked down underneath this spot, they actually found some wheels from chariots, Egyptian chariots of that era and some other um, hardware as well that would, of course, wouldn't have survived, but they found some of the metal that was there. Uh, I think I have this on a slide, so I'm not going to tell that next part of it yet. But this area right there, would have this is big enough, I'm told, to have held 2 to 4 million Israelites. They could have all been hanging out on here waiting. And uh, the Egyptian army would have been coming down the same path that they were in. So if there was, a, if, as, God, as the word says, happened, that he put uh, a blockage between the Egyptian army And the Israelites, all you had to do was block one of this area, the little path there, and they couldn't get through because you could not just go up into the mountain areas and get across. You had to come over this thing, which is why the Egyptians thought they had walked into a trap because they could not go this way because of the mountains. They could not go south because of the mountains. They could not come back because they were there, and they could not go forward because the Red Sea was there. This is why they felt they were trapped. There is no place on the other side on the traditional route that you can get that same situation. This is where you get it. And this is also where the evidence is. Go on to the next slide. That is what the path would look like leading out to this. That's the little beach area over there. There's the Red Sea. This is the path they would have walked. So it looks small, but you see that's wide enough that you can get a number of... uh, You can get a pretty good crowd of people out there through that, but you're not moving off to the sides very easily because that's pretty treacherous going. Go on to the next slide. There's a closer look at the beach landing that would be there and the Red Sea that they would have faced going across. Go on to the next slide. This is the pillar. Do you remember it said in the Bible that they put a pillar on each side? Solomon actually put up pillars on these sides to commemorate the crossing. Solomon put up a pillar on the Egyptian side, he put up a pillar on the other side, which now is the Saudi Arabian side. This pillar is over on the Egyptian side. I didn't copy the picture over, but if you went over to the uh, Saudi Arabia side, Saudi Arabia removed the pillar. And they put a cap in its place. To mark it, I guess, where it was, but they actually removed the pillar. There are no pillars any place by the Red Sea at the traditional area of crossing. But there is one here. Go on to the next slide. This would be the area that they would have crossed. That would have been the crossing route they would have gone. Go on to the next slide, and that would be the water that you're looking at. So you can see this is a this is quite a crossing. You, if you look look at all that water, you think how are we going to get through that? <laughs> so you can see why they would be scared. It's not a small amount of water. This is. A very imposing body of water that would be there, and there's the mountains on the other side. Go on to the next slide. Oh, is that the last one? Okay, go back to our second one. So this is Mount Sinai, as I believe that is the true Mount Sinai. If you ever read the book, you probably would believe that it's the real Mount Sinai. If you look at some of the evidence that's there, and if anyone has not gone through the evidence that is there for this being the, uh, the real Mount Sinai, let me know. I can text you, email you, whatever you want, a link, and you can go take a look at the uh, evidence yourself that is there. This particular Mount Sinai has, a, has inscriptions of golden calves at the base. It has the top of the mountain, which is scarred by smoke. There is no such scarring on this mountain. But you remember that God came down upon it. There was lightnings and thunderings and so forth. This mountain has scarring up at the top. There's also, uh, remember the, the story that talks about uh, Moses had water come from the rock and the rock split? They have a picture of that nearby, this, this site. There is um, uh, There was some gold that was found from that era at the base of this mountain. Uh, the evidence is all over on this place. The, even the place where Moses could have hid while God covered his face while he passed by is on this Mount Sinai. It is really remarkable when you look at all the evidence that points to this being the Mount Sinai. This is in the Saudi Arabia area. Of course, they don't want anything to help prove the Bible that it's true, so they have it marked off. They actually put a um, military base and fenced off this area of Mount Sinai so that it would become a restricted area, and you could not just go on out there. These guys actually snuck on and uh, at the risk of their own lives. So anyway, they could have come across here. We do all that to show you this. God brought them up this way. I did not give you another slide? Oh yeah, go back to the first slide. We need the first slide. I'm sorry. There is something on that first slide I didn't show you yet, but I will be, be showing you this. So God took them through here, led him into what looked like a trap. Along the way he led them into a place of no water, he led them into a place of bad water, he led them in a place where there's no food. And you look at all this and you say God led them in a way that was difficult, and they had a lot of hardships. Why does God lead them in a way that has so many hardships? Exodus thirteen seventeen 17. It's not up on your screen. I'm just going to read it, but you can write it down if you want. Exodus thirteen seventeen. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. This is what God did. I've got a choice. We want to bring them up out of Egypt. We want to take them up into the promised land, which is up here. This is where the promised land is. This is where they are in Egypt. What's the easiest way to go? Straight up here. That is the easiest way to go. You just go straight up here. More than likely, I don't know all the all the scenario of this, this way, but it's, it's a lot shorter. But more than likely, if you went up along this way... You wouldn't be faced with no water. You wouldn't be faced with all the wilderness things they were faced with down here. But God said, I'm not taking them on the northern. This is the northern route. I'm not taking them on the northern route. Why? Because of the land of the Philistines. If they were to come up here, they would face Gaza, Hebron, all the Philistine cities. They would face war. And they said, if they face war now, it will discourage them and they'll return to Egypt. What is remarkable is, what did they keep saying all the time they were going in the southern route? We should go back to Egypt. If God said, if we take them the north way, they will definitely say, we want to go back to Egypt. And would have turned around. And they went the south way and still said, we are discouraged, we want to go back to Egypt. God was right, wasn't he? God was right not taking them this way. So what God is saying is, I have a couple of ways I can bring you up. One, I can do this, but you guys won't handle it. You're not ready for it. And you, if I do that, it will be more difficult for you than you are ready for. So I will take you the longer way, the, long, the way that probably requires God to do more, I will take you down this way, so that you have more time to build up and to get ready. I put this in your outline for you. God led them away from trouble that would crush them, but in the way of trouble that would develop them. God led them away from trouble that would crush them, but in the way of trouble that would develop them. Very often, The only thing that we have to compare our life, our situation, our path to is the path that we took. We are not able to compare it to the path that we didn't. And the Bible is not written about our life in such a way to say, I didn't take you the north way because of the Philistines. But I took you the south way. And so all we look at is all the difficulty that we had on the south way. We don't know what God spared us from But all we're seeing, what we're facing, I say, I don't like it. And we complain to God. This is difficult. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this hard. And God is saying this. Look, there's more difficulties when you get to the promised land. I have got to get you ready to face the difficulties that you will face there. I will be with you. I will help you. But there's still things you have to do. And you're not ready to do them. So we got to take you down over this way. And so he took them down in the southern route. So anyway, just wanted to review that. Uh, this is the traditional ones. If you look at this, I don't think it's traditional. I don't understand how they even got to this in the in the begin with because there's absolutely no evidence anywhere along this path that any of this happened. Whereas if you take the other path that these folks found and document it, you will see all the things that happened to Israel along the way. Well, this is where this could have happened. This is where the rock could have split because they have a split rock. A big split rock. They have it there. They have pictures of it. Uh this is where the altar could have been that the Israelites made. This is the great look this is the location for it. This is where they could have had that big party going on. They have all this stuff at the base of that Mount Sinai. They don't have it at the traditional Mount Sinai. But they have it at this one. So that's something that you can you can check out if you want to. Now God didn't make the obstacles. God did not make the obstacles of no water. He didn't make the obstacles of no food. He didn't make the obstacles of the difficulties that they would face. They were there. He didn't make the obstacles of the Philistines. They were there. But he was going to help them through it. God doesn't make the obstacles that we face in our life, but he will help us through them. But very often we're we're blaming him for those. So they did not know what was avoided. But know this, if God led you in a particular direction and there are difficulties, He expects that you have what is needed to overcome. If He led you to it, He didn't lead you there because there wasn't any problem. He didn't lead you there because there weren't any obstacles. He led you there because what you have on the inside of you, you are able to overcome. Which tells me that every obstacle, every difficulty they faced in the southern route, They had what was needed to overcome. They just didn't rely on it. They just did not draw off of it. Verse 11, Zechariah 8. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heaven shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these, and it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Now when I read this, I read this this way. When they first came back, they needed to be toughened up a little bit to face what was coming down the road. But you guys have already been through a whole bunch of stuff. You are already in the place you need to be. Now be strong and get out there and do it. Because you are strong enough to get this going. That's what he's telling them. It's not going to be the same difficulty before. You're going to see. It's going to be better. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath. Now you remember some of the things we read in the prophets. uh, How God determined to, to punish them. Remember you have to go back to the study in Ezekiel. But boy, did that ever give a picture of how much God says, look... I'm doing this. I am punishing you. I am coming after you. This is what's going to happen. (laughs) That was pretty clear, with all that. So just as he was determined to punish them, when their fathers provoked in the wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. He would not. Remember how he would not be turned back? Even Josiah, the great repentance. Well, that's great. I appreciate your repentance. I'm still bringing it. I'm still bringing every bit of that. It's still coming. He would not relent. So again in these days I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. So what he's saying is this. All those prophecies you read, everything you heard about my determination to send punishment upon the nation of Israel for their sins, every bit of that is now on the opposite side because I am zealous for you as I was zealous to make sure that you were punished. I am zealous to bring you into this area of prosperity. I am zealous to see good come. I am zealous to dwell in my presence in the city of Jerusalem and we're going to change this place. I am zealous for this in the same way that I would not relent from punishing. I will not relent from this blessing coming upon you. Wow. What a, what a prophecy to read for them, huh? Let your hands be strong. Do not fear, he says. And that's the basis for it. It goes on to verse 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts: Just as I determined to punish you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again, in these days, I am determined to do God to, to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So again, he reiterates this. Look, this is coming. This good stuff is coming your way. Nothing is going to stop it. You are already in a place to receive this blessing, to receive this. Just be strong and go forward. Verse 16. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgments in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. You can look up the seven things God hates and go over those again, probably most of those you remember. But he says, now put yourself in a position to receive the blessings. The blessings are coming. I'm not going to relent in this thing. I am sending the blessing, but I need you to put yourself in a position to receive the blessing. So I summarize them this way. I didn't have room to keep all this in your outline. But I summarize them this way. First off, speak truth. Speak truth. Now I put in parentheses this, this. It means you must know it. You cannot speak truth until you know it. How many Christians are out there speaking what the media has given them as truth? It is not truth. And they go out there and repeat this stuff. You are not repeating truth. Speak truth. Make sure that you speak truth. Find out what the truth is and speak it. So he's saying this to them. Speak truth to your neighbor. Make sure when you have conversations... With people. That you are speaking truth. That you have done your homework. You know what the truth is. We're not just talking... He just says truth. Not even just talking about truth in the word. Make sure that whatever current events you have going on. Make sure you got truth. Jesus was dealing with people who were speaking to him about current events. And they didn't have the truth on it. He had to set them straight. They didn't go over a whole lot of current events there. But there were a few times that came up. And sometimes he even brought up. Hey, you remember when this happened? And he spoke the truth to them about that. Because they didn't know the truth. About what they had an assumption... A lot of people in this world that have assumptions about truth. Make sure you speak truth. That's the first thing he comes out of the gates with. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Make sure you're not, you're not going over there passing on false things. Stirring up the sentiment because there's false things going on. Don't be doing it. Secondly, he says, give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. I, I put this, summarize it this way. Be fair and avoid being partial. Be fair, and avoid being partial. Sometimes, well, these are part of my group. I I like these people. I don't like these people. Don't be partial. Make sure that you are fair. Make sure that you listen to all things. If you're not in a position, this is, I've told you before, this is what I always try to make sure I do. If I am not in a position to hear both sides of an argument, I stay completely out of it. I don't, you may try and tell me a side, it goes in one ear, not the other. Because if I cannot get the other side all it's going to do is get me to be bent in one direction and I will become partial to it. And I know my God is not happy with that. So I stay out of it. Unless I can get both sides, I don't want to hear anything that's going on about it. If I can get both sides, I'll listen to both sides. Then you go off and you pray with God. God, what's going on with this thing? What's happening? And you need to be impartial. You cannot be given, well, I like this person better. Well, no, I like this person better. Nope. Cannot be doing that. So this is, this is going to put them in a position to receive the blessing that God says, I'm sending it. Now I want you to get in position to receive it. Speak truth. Be fair. Avoid being partial. Third, be peaceable, not divisive. How many people you know that go around and they're divisive? They say things, spark people against each other. Don't be doing that. Be peaceable. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. So be peaceable. Not divisive. Sometimes people are going out there and they give judgment for the whole purpose of stirring up strife. Don't be, don't be following suit with those people. Fourth thing I did write down wrote down on this don't think evil. Let none of your seventeen, let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Well, go back to the New Testament. Jesus talked to you about that. None of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Don't think evil. Give them the benefit of the doubt. If you hear something about somebody, don't think evil about them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Go to them and talk to them. Straighten it out. Don't think evil. And do not love a false oath. Otherwise, despise lying. Despise lying. This is the things he's given them to do. If you do these things, you will put yourself in a position to receive the blessing. How often does the enemy try and tempt us to not follow these things? to try and get us to break these particular things? Do not let him do it. Don't let him take you down that way. Find some way to get these things that Jesus says here in Zechariah 8:16 through17, find some way to keep them before your face. Think of them all the time. Speak truth. Which means you have to know it. Be fair and avoid being partial. Be peaceable, not divisive. Don't think evil. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And despise lying. Get those verses up there. Put them on your refrigerator. Do whatever you need to do. Verse 18. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful fast, a feast for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So he's coming back to these particular fasts. We went over them in the, the last time. These are the four fasts that we talked about in chapter 7. Uh, one section I left out, somebody asked me about during the, during the week. And that was, what do you do with uh, birthdays and anniversaries of uh, people that you lost? Sometimes we have a, a spouse, parent, friend. We have anniversary that it's a, it's a sad anniversary. We remember this is their birthday. I'm not able to celebrate their birthday. I'm not able to celebrate an anniversary. I'm not able to celebrate this special day. God doesn't expect us to forget them. So I left out a little section that I had here for last week. That we still remember the birth and death of Jesus Christ, don't we? We can still remember them. We're never told in the Word of God that we have to not remember those things. I still remember the, <clears throat> remember the birth and the death of Jesus. But when we do it, we do it with joy. It brings joy to our lives. Make sure that you do those things with people that have gone on or people that are lost or people that bring uh, the thought of losing them has brought sadness to you. Make sure you do those things, those ritual things. Do them and let them bring joy. When you celebrate their birthday, when you think about, well, this is their birthday or not. Well, think about the things that were good. Think about things that are, that are joyful because if every time you come to that, you think of things that are sad. Your body is not built to handle sorrow for that long. It will wear you down. God does not want you to have that kind of sorrow. Sorrow will be for a little while. That's fine. But then you need to get out of it and do things. You can still do those things. You know, some people, they go and they visit the tomb where the people are buried or um, they have different things to do. And you can still do that, but do it in a way where it brings joy. Remember the good things that you had with them. Remember the the uh, positive things that were there. If you don't, it will do more to hurt you than it will to help you. And the enemy is looking for ways to hurt you. And if he can use situations like that and bring you into sorrow a couple of times a year, he will do it because he knows it will bring you down. God does things that lead us into joy. And that's the one we need to follow. Anyway, I wanted to make sure I covered that part from last week. Verse 20, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray. Before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts, I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Now, it says here, peoples, not just a multitude. People by itself is plural. You don't need to put peoples in there unless we're talking about a multitude of people from a multitude or many nations, many cities. So, this is what it's talking about. We're not talking about people coming from Babylon. We're talking about peoples coming from many nations that are going to come back. The the Lord says that peoples will come. Peoples will come into this city. They'll say, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. Now, if they're coming from other nations, these are not Jews. We're looking at people from other nations. They're going to come and they're going to say, hey, bring us over. We want to come there with you. We want to learn about God. We want to serve God. Verse 22, yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. I saw one commentator made this, and I, I, I understand what they're trying to get at, but I don't think that's, it's quite on the right page. Actually, it was a pastor who was down in... A, down in Philadelphia for a time, but he has some commentary out. And he wrote this, he says, well, the Jewish man is Jesus, and that everybody is latching hold of Jesus. To come. That sounds spiritual and all that, but that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about they're going to find somebody who's Jewish. Ah, there's somebody who knows something about Jerusalem, and they're going to latch hold of him. Now, what's interesting about this word here is, uh, well, let's go in verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying... Grasp that word there for grass means to take hold of something you must not let go of. You must not let go of. There are two times where this is used in the Word of God. I'll give you a good picture of this. One is in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 4. When it talks about grabbing a lion, I'm, I'm, uh, grabbing a snake by the tail. I'm sorry, Exodus 4.4. 4. You remember that story when Moses grabbed the snake by the tail? Yeah. Um, when you grab a snake by the tail... You don't want to let go. <laughs> you're getting that snake mad. He's going to turn around and get you. I, I look at the guys that grab him by the tail. I think, no, that's the, the bed. You don't want that because the business ends up on the other side there. But somehow they're able to control that thing and, and do things. But once you've got it, you've got to be real careful with when, when and how you let that thing go. You grab hold of it. It's the same thing in First Samuel seventeen thirty five. It talks about a man grabbing a lion by its beard. If you're going to do that, uh, you better finish the job. Because if you don't, he's going to come over and finish you. So, when he uses this word grasp, it means when you grab hold of something and you must not let it go. Like if you were falling off of something and found a rope and hung onto that rope. Took, you were grasping all that rope. You cannot let it go because you will fall. That's the idea. They're going to take hold of a, of a sleeve of a Jewish man and grab hold like I cannot let this go. You are my lifeline to know about God. Take me to Jerusalem. Take me to God. Show me some things here. These are people from from powerful nations, it said. They will come, and they will say, we need the Lord. Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This last part of this verse so uh, gets hold of me, because this is prophetically saying, first off, that Israel will be the draw of nations of the earth to God, and This part here, we have heard that God is with you. Bypassing the main draw of the world. What is the main draw of the world to the things of God? What they have heard? No. What they have seen. The world wants to see things in order to believe in God. Well, show me this and I'll believe in God. It's what they've seen. But look at the word in here in the prophet's message. We have heard that God is with you. Not we have seen. We have heard. Which means this is the good kind of faith. The good kind of faith has gone into these people in the world. And because of what they heard. They're coming to God. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? When she heard about Jesus. She didn't see, about, she didn't see Jesus do this. She heard about Jesus. When she heard about Jesus. Jesus said to her. She had great faith that came from what she heard. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. I love the way that verse ends because we have heard that God is with you. God will turn their lack into abundance, their sadness into joy, and the ungodly to seeking. He will take their days, their four fast days that they had, and turn them into days of joy. Because of all the abundance and all the joy that is present, they won't even desire to go out there and be fasting, but they will become feast days and they will celebrate what God has done. This is what he is saying. And God can do the same thing for us. He will turn our lack into abundance. He will turn our sadness into joy. And the ungodly that are around us, he can turn into seeking. Make sure that we do the things that we need to do. And those are the things that he listed in the verses previous. If you want to receive those things from God, make sure that you're doing those particular things. So what has the presence of God in your life done to change the characteristics of who you are? We started this whole thing out with the presence of God. He said, "I am I am zealous for you and I am coming and I'm going to make my presence in Jerusalem. And because my presence will be in Jerusalem, Jerusalem will become known as a city of truth and a city of justice and a city of righteousness." we're going to change how Jerusalem is known because my presence will be there. Well, we know that the presence of God is in us. So what has the presence of God in us done to change us? Sometimes Christians just accept the presence of God and they don't change. Well, that's just because I'm who I am. That's why I respond that way. That's why I talk that way. That's why I act that way. That's why these things go. Second Corinthians 3 and verse 18, you all are familiar with this verse, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The presence of God in us should bring about a change. What way God has led you? There were difficulties along the way and you were very aware of the difficulties but the presence of god in you was to change how you face those difficulties many times when the israelites were coming through uh, on the on the journey from egypt they were facing the same trouble with the same characteristics they were before they didn't change and it's not until the new generation came through and the new generation crossed over the jordan that we see they changed in how they faced trouble This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to change how we face trouble. The enemy wants you to see difficulties as proof that God doesn't care. But the Word teaches us that He does care and that the way has just the difficulty needed to prepare us for the road that is ahead. It will prepare you for the road that is ahead. As I told you many times before, God teaches you about Himself through what it is that you you learn. I learned this lesson Many years ago, when I was attending the King's College, I've often said two best things I got out of the King's College was Greek class and cross country. Because God taught me the importance of difficulties. Because we went through some practices and some training that I had never gone through in my life and I had never faced such adversity and I never faced such difficulty. I never faced such despair in the midst of a workout. In the midst of going up a hill, in the midst of a race that I faced in those in that first year, that first year was a big change for me. But I learned about how facing that obstacles, how facing those things, how time and practice in facing those obstacles, built you to be able to face those obstacles in the race. I didn't know what intervals was, when I was in high school, and when we were in gym class, I had the the wrong attitude in gym class, and that I looked at all these peons. They were in the gym class with me. That's how I looked at them. They were all peons. Because I said, these guys aren't runners. I am a runner. I run everywhere. I run 10 miles a day without even blinking an eye. I just run. And so the coach came out and he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to run around the track fast one time and then walk it one time and then run around the track fast one time. I heard him say that. I said, that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. I am not going to run around the track one time. And then walk one time. I wasn't going to run around this track for all the time that we're out here in class. I will just keep running around this class, and I just kept running around the thing, running around the class. Now, when we got to the time, and we got, there was only one kid that beat me in the uh, in the in the race. He didn't beat me by much, but there's only one kid who was faster for me in the mile, and uh, and I didn't think much of it. But when I got to, to college, and I faced my first interval workout. Uh, anybody you know what interval? In, I my first interval workout, and it was a doozy. I've told people about our workout, what we did, and they said, I can't believe that your coach put you through that. And we were overworked. We were definitely overtrained. But the normal workout he would do is 20 quarter-mile sprints, 85% speed, and you had two minutes rest between each one. You could walk, you could run, you could jog, you do whatever you want. You had two minutes rest, two minutes rest. You better be back up at the finish line. And if you came through the first quarter-mile at 65 seconds, your, your last 20, 20th one time you went through, you better not be slower than 68. You had to stay within a certain amount of, of range throughout the entire 20 of them. 20 quarter, that's five miles of running 85% speed for the whole thing. And I had never faced anything like that. I thought, dear Lord, why in the world would we do that? But I began to learn, it is the adversary along the way that teaches you how to approach the adversary in the race. And this is what God teaches us in life. It is the adversaries that you face along the way of life that will teach you when the race comes. Israel, when they were going through that journey into the Southlands and then coming coming back on up, they were to learn how to face adversaries so when they crossed over the Jordan and they faced the adversary of the first battle, they would be ready for it. But they did not face adversary the right way and when they came to the battle... They failed before they even crossed over. And God does not want that to happen to you. He will lead you into places where there are difficulties. But it's only to help you. If we do come to a place of total despair, we did not receive the preparation that we needed. And there's usually, there's three reasons I came up for this. We prefer going backwards to groan. Some Christians prefer going backwards to groan. Israel wanted to go backwards. I'd rather go to, back to Egypt. A second way, we just want to be removed from it. And third, we're blaming God instead of using what He gave us. Going backwards, be removed, or blame God. These are some of the ways that we approach despair. Remember the example of Jesus when he helped the disciples on the lake in the storm. They came down to Jesus. What did they say to him? Master, don't you care? Don't you care? But when he got up on the boat and he rebuked the storm, remember what he said when he turned to them? Where is your faith? How is it that you have no faith? He expected them to face the trouble and handle it based on what they had. And they didn't do it. They didn't rise to the occasion. They had developed faith along the way and Jesus expected them to use it in the storm instead of begging Him for help. But they didn't do it. They were bailing water. Remember the disciples on the night Jesus was taken? They they faced trouble. They faced the test. And they failed. They ran. Peter and John in the lame man incident they were brought before the the uh, religious leaders and they were beaten and they were scolded don't preach in this name again and what happened on that time? they didn't fail they rose up and they were glad that they could face persecution they prayed God make us even more bold Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison They went in, followed after God. God led them into this place. They faced opposition. They're there in the prison, backs beaten. What are they doing? Praising God. Why? Because they learned how to let the opposition along the way help them when they were in the test, when they were in the race. Several of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were told about things they would face. God says, this is coming, but you're, you are in a position to win. The tribulation saints are told the same thing. Some of you are going to be killed. The presence of God in our life should change us into people who are less taken by sin and sinful desires. That's a change that should happen. We should not be taken by sin and sinful desires like we were before. The presence of God in our lives should change us into people who are more prone to overcome instead of being overcome. That's what the presence of God should do in our lives. The presence of God in our lives should change us into people who are kind, even to those who are not. The presence of God in our lives should change us into people who are obedient, even when it seems like it is better not to be. The presence of God in our lives should change us into people who are less selfish and more servant-minded. The presence of God in our lives should change us into people who are less focused on how something benefits them and more focused on how it helps the kingdom. We received restoration, but don't quit growing until you have been altered. Restoration is great, but God is going for an alteration. Not every Christian goes through the alteration. They're happy with the restoration. Well, I've been restored. I'm saying, no, wait. Keep on going and get to the place of being altered. Let God's alteration have an effect on you. Don't just settle for restoration. Restoration is great. Restoration is good. But there is more down the road. Father, we thank you for the alterations that await us in life. You are going to change us into the presence of God. You are going to change us into people that the world looks at and says, we need what you have. But you gave us a list of things that we needed to do to make sure we honor if we want to receive these things. It's your list. And we want to live up to it because we know it's a good list. It's a good thing to follow. I thank you for it. I thank you for the restoration that you have done in our lives. But I look forward even more to the continued alteration as we are changed into the very image of God. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.